Welcome back to Redefine You, a conversation for well-being, where we have open and honest conversations with friends of mine in the industry to explore their ownership to self and mental well-being journey. As when one shares their vulnerability in such a way, we're encouraged to look within. I'm your host, Haley Hasselhoff. I'm an actor, model, fashion and well-being editor, and most importantly, a body positive and mental health advocate. As when we start to live a life led of acceptance, we stop resisting to the lack of power in our self-growth. Redefine You is meant to inspire you to look within and guide you to lead a life being grounded in you. Today's episode is all around breaking the stigma around mental health conversations through the power of media and influence. As this show taps into speaking with friends of mine in the industry around their vulnerability behind their mental well-being journey, I wanted to break down why this is so much more than just hearing how their challenges brought them to their triumphs, that speaking authentically to one another can truly impact the world in a huge way and allow for real empathetic change to happen. We can make a moment for the movement by sharing our stories and in hopes help someone know that it's okay to not be okay. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to my good friend, CEO, and founder of leading mental health nonprofit, Project Healthy Minds, Philip Shermer. Philip, we're so excited to have you on the show. Hello, Haley. I'm thrilled to be here. Now, guys, before we get started, some of the topics we're discussing today may be triggering. So if you are in need to speak to a crisis counselor, please remember to text home to 741-741- or you can head over to projecthealthyminds.com slash resources for curated resources ready to hear from you. Now, Philip, as I start every show, every episode, I like to ask my guests, if you were to check in with yourself right here, right now, what would you find? I would find a mix of exhaustion and optimism. You know, it's... it's. Um, I feel like we're finally getting around the curve on the pandemic. And I think that has a huge amount that brings a huge amount of optimism about yeah. our mental health, about where we're going, about the opportunities, but also a lot of exhaustion. It's been a long 15, 16 months. And, you know, yeah. as anyone knows who's been working in this space, uh, just because the pandemic might be wrapping up, hopefully doesn't mean that these mental health challenges that we're all talking about are just suddenly going to go away. They're going to be with us for a long time. So how am I doing? I'm, I'm happy. I'm excited, but I'm also emotionally drained and exhausted and burned out and ready for the weekend. Well, I think it brings me straight into all the wonderful work that Project Healthy Minds has done, especially during this past year. You know, Project Healthy Minds, you guys encourage the conversation around the mental health crisis and the importance truly in vulnerability. And I think one of the things I love most about you guys is that the model really starts with the media and the influence that we can make the change happen, right? So I wanted to start off the conversation today around discussing the history behind how being open and honest is vital for our humanity's growth and feeling we are never alone, how it allows us to open up and relate to another person and start to feel grounded within ourselves. So can you talk to us about one of the first moments in media that started to open up the gateway around the impact and vulnerability? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And I'll tell you, Haley, you know, when I started this work, and we'll get into it in a little bit. But when I started this work, I realized that that what we were trying to do in the mental health space in terms of changing public attitudes around mental health, destigmatizing the issue, bringing an issue that for too long had been relegated to dark corners uh, where people whisper, and we wanted to bring mm-hmm. it out into the into the bright light. That that really what we were trying to do. It probably wasn't the first time in in American history or or global history that people had been sitting around a table talking about an issue that was taboo, that was stigmatized, that they wanted to bring out into the light. And so I was like, you know what, if we're going to be working on this issue, we got to be students of history here. And so I was like, okay, well, like what, what would be good examples? And I went back in in American history, try to figure out like, okay, what are good examples from like the last 60, 70 years, Mm -hmm. um, things that we can learn from other fights, other taboo issue areas, where, where public figures were coming out, were, were leading with vulnerability and were sharing their story and it was impacting others. And it was interesting. What I found was pretty interesting. You know, you can trace the history 
of sort of this sort of advocacy back at least to Betty Ford, 1974, at a time when, you know, I'll be honest in saying, I did not realize until this work that when my parents grew up, when when many people's parents were growing up in America, cancer was highly stigmatized. It was called the big C. People did not talk about it publicly. And if you go back to 1974, you had Betty Ford who came out about her own breast cancer at a time when people didn't and got a mastectomy at a time when people did not get mastectomies and did not talk about getting mastectomies. And if you read the press coverage from the time, New York Times, Time Magazine, all kinds of press coverage, what you see is skyrocketing rates across the country and actually around the world of women getting breast cancer screenings as a result of Betty Ford being vulnerable and talking about her own breast cancer and getting a mastectomy. And you can you can draw a line from Betty Ford in 1974 on, on the issue of breast cancer mm-hmm. across the last 50 years to other issues as well, like Magic Johnson and HIV AIDS, right? And bringing out, finding role models in the community. Magic was at the height of his career when he came out about his HIV status. And for millions of people across the country, it played a massive role in bringing the issue out into the spotlight in ways that it hadn't. But you can draw that line from Betty Ford on breast cancer and magic on HIV all the way through a couple other issues too, right? You think about the LGBTQ issue, right? For so long, people have been closeted and unwilling to share their truth publicly. And what was interesting is I was digging into the research on it. This obviously predates my own uh, my own life, but one of the things that you find is, 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 is until Ellen DeGeneres and her show Ellen, until she came out at the end of the episode, until that point, LGBTQ characters had really been portrayed in popular media as tragic characters, right? It was always the character who was going through some, some major issue. And really, Ellen was like the first hero archetype of somebody who was the hero and could be gay. And that those two things could coexist just as often as any other issue around. And so you can draw a line from Betty Ford on breast cancer to Magic Johnson on HIV AIDS to Ellen on LGBTQ rights to Katie Couric in 2000 got a colonoscopy live on air on the Today Show after she lost her husband to colon cancer. Which is just like bow down to that. Like bow down. Seriously. I could only only imagine. And, And like... You know, what's interesting is scientists then coined a term afterward called the Katie Couric effect. Katie Couric effect was after she did her colonoscopy live on air, you saw a significant rise in the number of people who were getting colonoscopies across the country. That that increase is still maintained. Hey, so you can draw a line, you know, from, from all of these issues through a Melissa Milano and Me Too, even to Logic's 1-800 song, which is really the basis of the work that we're doing now, you know, that was organized around bringing mental health out of the shadows. So, so to answer your question, Haley, you know, on the, on the question of the role of vulnerability, at the core of all of these examples, you have the same dynamic. You have public figures, people that, that the rest of us look up to, who demonstrate through the power of their vulnerability, the ability to reshape the public discourse and bring issues that we all face out into the limelight so that people can actually talk, bring them their whole selves, to work and to their everyday life or to talk about the things that are impacting us that, that we need to be talking about. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is education is key. And until you are presented with something, you don't know what's different. And it's amazing to see that through that timeline, we've had so many people who have been able to champion their own struggles publicly by saying, I know that in hopes it's going to at least help one person. And in fact, it did. It helped so many people. I know the Logic song, you know, I know your history with Project Healthy Minds and how the nonprofit started. And I know that Logic had a really good um, example for you and in, in wanting to kind of 
turn your business skills into something more purposeful to the change that we can make by breaking the stigma. But I've never asked you this question before. What really of the song related to you personally? Why were you, did you hear the song? And then all of a sudden you were like, maybe this relates back to something that I'm dealing with or something that I know is dealing with, or did you sort of see the media out, you know, outreach and, and poor that kind of came with the song? Yeah. Well, you know, at the time, this was three years ago and, or, or four years ago, maybe even at this point, <laughs> pandemic and, year doesn't count. I know. It's like, I, I don't know whether to count that or not. Anymore. It's gone. Um, but, but, you know, it was, it, this was, this was four years ago and, you know, my, Haley, we're similar ages. And so, you know, I don't know if we go through the exact same things, but, but there are some <laughs> shared things that I think everybody in their twenties sort of goes through. And Wait, I had been millennial babies. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I had been observing that, that basically everybody seemed to be going through the same shit, no matter what, you know, where you lived or what industry you were in, you go through this process post-college where of individuation, right? Where you move to a city, you could be working in advertising or finance in New York. You could be working in politics in DC. You could be working entertainment in LA. You could be working in Silicon Valley on technology startups. But pretty much everybody that I was talking to, all my friends and everyone that I knew were going through basically the same life experience at the same time. They were basically working really long hours. They weren't finding much fulfillment in their work. Mm -hmm. If you ask people, do you want to be the 50 year old that runs your department one day? Do you want to have that person's life? Nine times out of 10, they're like, absolutely not. I do not want that person's life at all. And, and so many people, if you ask them, like, have you stayed in touch with person X or person Y more and more often people are like, Oh no, I wish, I wish I did. But like, I've done a terrible job at that. And I, I, I don't know what's happening with Jake Levy, you know? And, and at the core of a lot of that conversation, whether people use the term explicitly mental health or not, is really a mental health conversation. They're talking about a sense of belonging and community. They're talking, when they talk about being stressed out or burned out at work, they're really talking at the core of all of this about their own mental health. And, and so when, when I heard, first I heard the song and I was just thinking about it as, a, as someone who loves hip hop music and I was really moved by how powerful Logic's story was as a biracial guy from Gaithersburg, Maryland, sharing his story publicly and in in, in how his own identity and sense of belonging intersects with, with his own mental health journey. But then when I heard some of the stats about the impact that the song was having, and I thought about everything that I was going through and all my friends were going through and pretty much everyone my age that I knew was going through, I was like, you know what, these things have to relate in some way. And so, yeah, it, it impacted me personally because to me, it was, it was reflecting back, like all good music does. It reflects mm -hmm. back the lived experiences of people and helps shape culture as an amalgamation of our lived experiences. I think it's just, it's so important to see the influence we have actually to make change in the public eye. And I think right now more than ever, it is completely vital we showcase speaking up for ourselves when needed most that we actually have the power to showcase that it's okay to not be okay and still succeed. I do want to bring it back to current events, right? So you've talked about this gorgeous history of the vulnerability of media and influence, but let's talk about tennis player Naomi Osaka's withdrawal. You know, it's all about being able to put mental health and sports spotlight. And I know that you showcase that so beautifully on PHM's platforms. Can you talk to us a little bit about how this is gaining so much media attention and why it's so important for just sports in general? Yeah, well, she's unbelievable. I mean, we just, we got to stop for a second and give her kudos for her leadership. I mean, she's 23 years old. She's at the height of her career. She has so many choices in front of her. And the fact that she is choosing to protect her own mental health and doing so, so publicly and so visibly, honestly, it takes a ton of courage and, and a lot of vulnerability. But yeah, I mean, look, Haley, I was, I was really moved by Naomi's story because you had, a, you know, a young tennis star heading into the French Open, talking about uh, how she, how, you know, her own experience with the media creates a ton of anxiety for her that really harms her mental health. And she announced that she wasn't going to, to do any press 
tied to the French Open this year, not because she didn't want to, not because she was trying to be rude or anything, but that she was trying to protect her own mental health. And for a lot of us who are like in the fight day to day on mental health, that alone was a huge deal. I was like, that is amazing. Kudos to her. But what was interesting was uh, like the folks, the officials who run the French Open, the folks who, who are running, uh, uh, you know, tennis around the world reacted in all the wrong way, right? Mm. They basically took personal offense to it. People were, you know, I would say that the tonality of what they were saying was basically like, hey, young lady, like you better show up. And it was incredibly insulting. And, yeah. and the, it, it sort of grew to a fever pitch until eventually she posted basically saying, I, I'm, I didn't ask for all this attention, but I need to protect my mental health. And so I'm pulling out of the French Open as a result. And the response has been insane. I cannot tell you, I cannot open Twitter without seeing another two dozen messages of, of support. I mean, I, I just saw the other day, Will Smith was posting on his Instagram in support of Naomi. And I just feel like part of the reason why people are responding to it is it's the same thing that we talked about a minute ago, which is that here you have a tennis star, a young woman who is at the height of her game, who could be doing so many things. And she is choosing to protect her mental health and to be vulnerable about it publicly. And that is just so freaking relatable for so many people who, who go through similar issues. She's also protecting herself as an athlete. I mean, people forget there's a lot of preparation and your mindset and being mindful, which is what we talk about, right? In the mental health community is so important. And she's literally saying to herself, I've arrived here. I know that this is going to be something that could jeopardize my success and what I care about. So I'm going to actually revert back and take care of me for a second. It's sad to see that obviously she's not getting the support from the places that have put her onto that platform. But at the same time, it's amazing to see that she's going to hopefully become a part of that change that needs to happen within that community so that that athletes have more of a right and a say to be able to take a step back from even their contracts when needed to be able to take care of them because they're valuable so much more than whatever's in a scripture that says what they can and can't do. And I think it brings us, you know, great into why it was so impactful that the Olympians, you know, had the HBO sports documentary weight of gold. It allowed people to actually see behind the scenes what they're dealing with and how it impacts them, you know, to still be somebody who has challenging moments, but then can still, you know, rise to the top. What do you think that, you know, did for sort of our community and the beginning of really the pandemic? Well, first you got to give, we got to start with a shout out to Brett Rapkin, who who is the the brains behind that HBO doc for putting together Weight of Gold and, and to Michael Phelps for his leadership on the issue. I mean, you know, to me, that documentary was incredible because we think about Olympians mm. as the peak of strength. And like, literally, that is what the Olympics is about. It is about literally peak athleticism around the world. And here they were pulling back the curtain and showing that underneath that hard exterior, everybody is going through something. People have much deeper mental health journeys that might sit beneath the surface and that this inner relation, this relationship between our physical health and our mental health can't be overlooked. And I think one of the things that's interesting in particular, if I could just zoom in on, on Michael Phelps in particular is, yeah. you know, I think we are at a, at an interesting moment culturally across, you know, all of society in entertainment, whatever we have changing norms around the definition of masculinity, our understanding of masculinity. We have a, our first second gentleman in the history of the United States in the White House. You know, like we have these very embedded norms that go back generations about what masculinity means and that it's strength, that it's like, you know, you can't, you can't show any weakness. And in that construct that, uh, of how we understand masculinity, there's really historically been no space to be vulnerable about your own mental health journey. And I think when you look at Olympians and you have, you know, people who are coming out and saying, yeah, I am like, you know, the greatest Olympian of all time. And even I suffer from mental health challenges. 
it, it sort of humanizes and helps reshape how we think about both professional athletes, about strength, and about masculinity. It, it, well, Michael Phelps in general, I think of his story and I think uh, he's a, a prime example of the development that he's had with being able to shamelessly come out and speak vulnerably. Like, I think, you know, there were points in his career and, and I don't know the exact date, so excuse me, um, but there were points in his career that I remember him coming out and then being condemned for talking openly about his struggles. And now he's gotten to a place mm-hmm. where he can openly be, you know, celebrated for his struggles and talking about how it's shaped who he is and shaped a huge part of his professional career. And that brings me to a subject that we'll talk about a bit later. I think there's a lot of resistance between media and public figures feeling comfortable to come out and not have it personally affect their career. But I think we are in a beautiful space today where this, you know, this past year has really formed for a lot of more open conversations to form and for a lot more to not be judged because they're forming, if that makes sense. Um, You know, one of the things I do really want to tap into is that I love that all these conversations are happening and I think they're super important, but sometimes I do think that they can feel like a glorified moment that quickly passes. And that's something that I experience and have experienced for a long time in the body positive movement. You know, we, we get excited because we think that brands are finally listening to us and they're ticking hopeful boxes. And then all of a sudden next year comes around and we have to remind them again why they still have to have a curved woman on the catwalk, right? So it's so important that we remember to always have these conversations, that it's an ever-evolving world and we can't just stop because we feel like we made one step forward. We've got to keep going. Now, for many people who are listening who might not know, myself and Project Healthy Minds, you know, we held an event this past May for Mental Health Awareness Month. It was called (laughs) The Connectivity Between Body Image and Mental Health. And it, it started truly because me and you had this gorgeous conversation after an event that we did around Mental Health Awareness Month last year um, around the It's Okay campaign, where we realized there was so much connectivity between the mental health model and the body image model, right? And how we've both been championing these things for people to feel comfortable in their own skin and to take ownership for themselves. Can you explain to, to myself even, you know, how the two models from a business point of view have really stood out to you and how they relate to breaking the stigma together? Yeah, well, you know, I think that it's impossible to consider one without the other. You know, to me, like mental health is the most intersectional issue that exists, right? It relates to everything in our lives from, you know, if you, if you, if you lose your job and you don't know if you're going to be able to pay the rent or to put food on the table for your kids, that's a economics issue. That's a financial security issue. That's also a mental health issue. That creates toxic stress, right? If you're a person of color in this country and you turn on the news and you see another young person who is shot for not doing anything, right, that creates trauma for communities of color. And for everybody, I mean, I don't think anybody's exempt from this. We all, you know, think about our own body image and it's so intertwined into our self-confidence and our mental health. And I think that actually social has, I mean, Haley, you'd probably know be able to speak more eloquently on this than I would, but I really do feel like one of the challenges of social over the last decade is that it has really glorified sort of what some people perceive to be the perfect body image. And it has put it in the, in your newsfeed every morning, afternoon, and evening. And it, it creates an incredible amount of anxiety for everyone, men and women around, you know, do they look good enough? Do they look correct? And that impacts our self-confidence, our sense of self-worth. Worth. It also impacts our, our mental health every day. And so, yeah, I don't think you can look, at, I don't think anybody can look at these as two distinct issues. I think they're like intricately interlinked. And I think that there's a lot of lessons from what the body positive movement has undergone over the last 10 years, you know, a, around reclaiming our agency. I mean, that's the thing that, that I admire most about people like you, Haley, is like, you know, folks who basically say, 
you know, I don't care what the old standard, you know, what the old perceptions are of what perfect is. I'm reclaiming my time. I'm reclaiming my agency. Yeah. And I, I'm going to be perfectly happy with, with who I am. And I'm going to redefine what great looks like in my own image. And I think that that is it. the lesson of mental health as well. Hey, you know, here's the thing, people. The fear of the unknown should be squashed right away in every aspect of your life. We're here to feel, we're here to evolve, we're here to be. And I think the fear of the unknown stops us for so many things, especially trying to break a stigma, right? And in the body positive movement, it's the, you know, you have to take these big leaps and bounds and be vulnerable with yourself and vulnerable with the brands you work with and being able to say that I am grounded in who I am today because I accept where I am today. And for me, you know, the reason why body image and mental health really makes sense to me in such a bigger spectrum is because I know that when my mental health has suffered, my self-judgment on myself has started to rise and then my body image and my relationship with who I am suffers. And so where does that fix then? Well, it goes to the place of accepting my emotions, validating who I am and knowing that I'm ever evolving and giving myself freedom within that. Because I think a lot of times, um, you know, we feel like we need to be okay with where we're at when in fact life is surrounding us and moving so much quicker than we can probably grasp. So we need to start living in the state of accepting and allowing ourselves to go with where we want to be. You know, I, I, I love all the conversations that we've had around the connectivity between body image and mental health. And I think it is, it is so, so important to continue to have that conversation because if somebody feels still in a place where they are fearful to talk about their mental health, maybe body image is that first step or talking about self-image and talking about their relationship with who they are. And that may make a bit more sense. So there's always a gateway. There's a gateway either to talk about through mental health or there's a gateway to talk about it through self-image. There's a gateway, you know, there's, there's a gateway to be able to have people understand this concept that we're trying to say, which is really just making yourself a priority, checking in with who you are and allowing yourself to grow and to be excited and curious about what step you're going to take next. Um, I will say this, we're talking so much about the influence though, the body image has the influence that mental health has. Sometimes it can be really daunting to talk about it openly in the public eye because you have so many other outside opinions that possibly can be quite triggering when you do bring it into question or you bring it into topic, right? For myself, this has been even a huge, a huge thing. Over the past year, I mean, I've I've talked openly about depression, which I've never talked openly about. I was born into an industry where I was sort of guided into this way of saying, don't speak about your personal life. You know, there's certain things you keep to yourself and there's certain things that um, can be shared. And so it was a very eye-opening experience to say the least for me this past year, one in which I'm so grateful for, and I'm so happy and I'm proud of myself for finding the courage to be able to speak openly about it. But, uh, you know, it did definitely take, take a moment, you know, take a moment to, uh, there were definitely moments where I was, I was on the gas pedal, off the gas pedal, on the gas pedal, off the gas pedal. So I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about why there's such a stigma in speaking openly in media and the public eye, because it's great that we've spoken about how there's amazing leaders who have come out and done the thing, but there is still a place where I think, you say to somebody, oh, you know, you've spoken about your anxiety before. Let's go on a show and let's talk about anxiety today. And there's a little bit of apprehension still because we don't know how it's going to be perceived. Totally. Well, you know, it's, it is core to being human that we all want to project what we perceive to be the best versions of ourselves, the, the versions that have no flaws, that are successful. And I think but that's one thing that social has accelerated. Like very rarely are you scrolling through your Instagram and people are being hyper honest about what's actually happening in their life. Now, I do think that there's more of that in the last few years. Cause I think people, there's been this like countercultural reaction to just like endless photos, you know, on a, on a beach somewhere with a yacht in the background, you know, closing a business deal while dating a supermodel and whatever, you know, like, I do think that there is. What accounts like, do you follow? 
I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying that like that, that is what I think most people sort of expect when they open up Instagram. You rarely see photos of people crying about stuff or being yeah. honest about stuff. I do think like it's interesting. There's been this, this, this trend on TikTok the last few weeks of lots of folks showing what their real body is. And there's this comparison. I think it's like, it's been a really fascinating trend because it's like, it's really trying to get at the root of, uh, you know, because you asked the question, like, why is there still fear? Why is there still stigma? Well, it's like, it's a core natural human emotion to want to project the best version of yourself to be perfect. Mm. And social has only made that pressure to be perfect. 10x worse because all you see are images of everyone succeeding everyone with the big house and the beach and blah 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 blah, blah. and 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 so i think you know part of what all of this is about is finding um some sense of happiness in who we are and not being concerned that our self-worth is tied up in other people's views. I mean, there's a great line. Yeah. There's a, a friend yeah. of mine, Dr. Alfie, who has this great line. Who's, and she says, the thing you have to remember about self-worth is the first word. It's about self, your own self-worth, not about your self-worth coming from other people. And I think that that's very true. I think that's really the essence that's, that sits underneath our fear about being honest and vulnerable with people about all the shit that we all go through. Well, that's exactly, I think, why, you know, this podcast is so important is it's all about being able to find yourself by listening to other people's stories and then being inspired to be able to find what means something to you. What I heard from everything you just said as well was, you know, this, we're showing this best version of ourselves. Well, why don't you change this idea and know that the best version of you is here right now? Put a front looking selfie. Sorry for my language, but, you know. <laughs> I'm going to fucking say it. Put a fucking selfie on, on your face. Take a photo and post it and leave it there. And, you know, just put it out into the world and know that you are worthy just as you are right here, right now. And I think that it's funny because when you talk about these types of things, I have a very different relationship with social. You know, I feel like I've always had at arm's reach. You know, I, I sort of post it, I let it go, leave it be. And I think this past year, it's allowed me to really find my freedom within it to post the things that are in my camera roll that necessarily were moments of challenges for myself that I was documenting that then I wanted to share with somebody else to make them realize that it's okay. I just posted a video around um, social anxiety and something I've never necessarily spoken um, too much on on my account. And it was sort of a reflection video after an episode that I had and was sitting there trying to kind of gather my thoughts as to what the trigger was so that I could identify it and then hopefully be able to help me when the next flare up happened. And was it scary to share? Of course it was, but it was one of those moments where I knew that I needed to, by being able to open this conversation and to have more people want to speak openly about their own struggles and know that it is a normal conversation to have. It was a beautiful thing for me to do for my own self-growth and for my own, um, my own journey, which then relates hopefully to somebody else's. You know, you did talk a little bit about social media and the influence it has, which we all know that it does have an influence. And there is sort of this power that we have within the influence, but it does take time and, you know, a lot of, of kind of control over what you want to see and, and who you want to follow. There's still this fear, right, around the topic of mental health, but there is a gateway. And I do want to talk about the three ones that really do tap into hitting to the masses to encourage people to know that it's okay to not be okay. So there's aspirational role models, right? We've got sports, TV, film, then you've got relatable role models, who's your peers, your family, your coworkers. And then again, what we've been speaking about, social media and TV and film influence. Can you sort of break this down for us on how each one of these truly relate into our own story and power within our vulnerability? Yeah. Well, look, I think, you know, when, you, when you're thinking about topics that are taboo that are stigmatized the question is like where where do those taboos come from right they come from like our popular culture and our notion of what's you know normal versus abnormal and and those are rooted 
in, in, in particular in two kinds of role models. One is the aspirational role model. It's right. It's the, it's the Michael Phelps that you see on TV at the Olympics. It's Will Smith in your, in your movies. It's Naomi playing at the French open or not playing at the French open. You know, it's these aspirational role models that for a lot of people we look at, we look up to, and we say, we want to be like that person. Right. And, and so what that person does sets the norms and standards in popular culture around what's, what's acceptable, what's cool and what's not acceptable and not cool. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the role of aspirational robots is critical. If we're serious about trying to confront the mental health crisis, then we don't need any more episodic things that happen here, here, and here, or ad hoc things that you see once you never see again. We need aspirational role models at scale talking about mental health and telling stories in popular media across social, on TV, in movies that help sort of open the aperture and help us under, better understand, you know, tell stories that reflect back the reality of the world that we actually live in, not the one that we sort of think exists where nobody has any mental health issues or people who do are really like unusual on, and on the outside. But the other piece of the equation, as everyone knows, is like your influence, you know, this all comes back to like who influences who. And one part of it right. is aspirational role models, but one part of it is also relatable role models, right? It's your parents. It's, it's the kids you grow up with. It's the people you're friends with now. It's the people you work with. It's the people who are a few years older than you, who you always wanted to be when you were in middle school or high school. And you looked at the seniors when you were a freshman, you said, I want to be that senior, right? I want to be the captain of the basketball team. I want to be the captain of the tennis team. I want to be a track star, whatever. I want to go to blank college. And, yeah. and so when I think about like, what, wh what's the role of all of these players, like at the core here, what we have to do are tell more authentic and real stories about the mental health journeys that everybody goes through. And so the keys here are you need aspirational role models using their platform and their reach to share stories that relate to different kinds of communities, communities of color, Jewish communities, LGBTQ communities, women, name the community. At the same time, you also need local communities. You're relatable where people have a real responsibility. I mean, I'll tell you, I was just on a call earlier today and this amazing woman out of, out of Nashville who was talking about the work that she's been doing in Nashville on mental health. And she yeah. runs a company that has, I think, I think like 50 employees. And, and she was talking about how she's very involved in, she lost, she was dating somebody who was an original, one of, was a survivor of Columbine originally. And he, he had his own journey and, um, and sort of through her relationship with him, she got very involved in the mental health scene. And so mm -hmm. she's been very open talking about this stuff and she runs this company and she, she has very generous mental health benefits for employees to get mental health services. She was telling me the story today about how she, despite being so open in her personal life and making therapy available and all kinds of support services available to her employees, none of her employees were using it. And she was trying to figure out what the heck is going on that people are not using. And what she realized was, was that the leaders in her company, her direct reports, other than herself in her personal life, her leaders were not role modeling to their teams the importance of doing this stuff. And so she made all of them go try mental health services. And suddenly everybody in the company was using it. And the point is, is to basically say, one part of the ingredient of what we need is aspirational role models, but the other ingredient of what we need are leaders in, in local towns everywhere, role modeling, like for everybody, there's somebody who's looking up to you. And so the key is, can you role model the kind of life that we're preaching? I also think it's, you know, be that role model in your community, within your friend group, within your your family group, bring up these, you know, hard topics and conversations and challenge people to be open. I think that's one of the things that I used to do from a very young age is I would kind of figure out, you know, who is going to be my good friends by outpouring all of my stuff onto them from the beginning and then be like, can you handle it? Um, you know, and I think that it's, it's important to be able to have real, authentic, beautiful conversations with people that aren't 
just surface level. And if you can't find that within your community, there is actually a beautiful community that you can find on social media. So that does bring us to social media and TV and film, which I think I know we spoke, you know, we spoke about the negative sides of social media before, but there is a positive side of social media. And it's being able to find a community that you can tap into anywhere in the world that makes you feel welcomed, loved, seen, heard, and wants to be able to have these so important and authentic conversations with you. And I know that, you know, well, I'll let you you take it from TV and film, but I know that from my experience with TV and film, even, you know, playing uh, a role with as Amber on Huge, where she dealt with body dysmorphia, it educated myself at an, such a young age of 17 around body dysmorphia, what that was, what that meant, if I identified with it. And it's such an amazing pool of, and, and way for us to really connect to a bigger understanding to culture and to what the world has to offer and being empathetic towards a person. Totally. I mean, you know, I don't think, just to be clear, I do not think that social is inherently bad. I think how we people use social can be good or bad, like all things, like how we, how much soda we drink or how much orange juice we have or whatever can be good or bad. And it's the same thing. I mean, I think you're totally right. Like the, the amazing part of social and the thing that keeps me optimistic about all of this is that um, it creates connectivity that has never existed for our parents did not grow up in a world in which you could see the stories of regular people halfway across the country that you've never met. And so I think the real power and the opportunity around social is how do we use social to raise up more of the stories that are so relatable that give us that sense of hope and courage to speak more openly about mental health. I think that's the real power of social. And that's why I still believe in it. I think that there is still this fear or, you know, lack of education towards mental health versus mental illness, which I think can sometimes constrict somebody to feeling like it's a safe space to present something as such on social media, right? So let's talk about a little bit uh, about mental health versus mental illness. Because I know this is very important within your model at Project Healthy Minds and how you guys speak to your audiences. So for anybody who is a little bit curious on the um, connectivity and also the difference between the two, can you speak to us a little bit on that as well? Yeah. So I think the reality is, is that we have a very disorganized, complicated set of, you know, language and, and toolkit verbally and mentally in terms of how we think about this issue. If you look at a lot of the nonprofit, even the nonprofits or clinicians, like go spend a couple minutes online. And what you'll find is like people use the terms mental health, mental illness interchangeably. They, you know, people sometimes say mental wellness. There's, there's no perfect, definition and no clinician that is worth their salt would say that that the whole category that as an industry or as a group of people and institutions that, that we've done a great job in explaining the issue. And I actually think that's why people have a pretty weak understanding, a mental model for how to understand the issue. But I'll mm-hmm. tell you basically some, some of what my principles are on this. The first is I do not use the term mental illness. I try to avoid that. I do not like it. Illness as diction choice is stigmatized. Nobody wants any illness, right? You don't want a physical illness. You don't want a mental illness. And so if stigma is an issue that we're confronting, I don't really understand why people use the term illness as often as they do. I mean, I, 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 and I guess that's a little bit harsh, but I guess to be fair to them, what people, what it's rooted in, if you're trying to understand what it's rooted in, why do people say mental illness? For a long time, people had a different kind of fight in this space, which was that they were trying to convince the public that, that these mental health issues were just as valid as physical illnesses. And so people would talk about them as mental illnesses to give them equal weight and to say, it's not just like something in your head that you should brush off or act like doesn't exist. You should take it seriously. It's an illness, right? But I think we're a little bit further. Like society has caught up. Society understands that now. But I think it's important that we now evolve our vocabulary because illness addiction choice is stigmatized. And so when I think about like, you know, 
mental health, mental wellness. I mean, one question I remember early on, I was, I was in a big group of all these nonprofits and all these doctors. And I said, let me just ask you all a question. Like if I asked you to define mental health, write it on a piece of paper silently and then hold it up, would you all define it the same way? They're like, no, no, we wouldn't. That's one of the problems. <laughs> like what is even mental health? Is, is, is mental health just the, the absence of something or is it the presence of something? Right? It, it's really, so the way I like to think about it, that I think is a much healthier way of thinking about it is that, you know, you, it's very analogous in my view to sort of physical fitness, right? We had in the nineties, there was a real cultural emphasis on like weight management, weight watchers, slim fast. And it was like pounds as a proxy for physical health. And then I would say over 25 years, we've sort of evolved to a broader conception about physical health. That's more about physical fitness. And, and this idea that like you, everybody is, is lives on the same spectrum and our biology plays a role. Like my younger brother can, can, you know, eat five hamburgers and not gain a pound. And I, I certainly am not that way. And, and yet, despite the biology of where you might start, everybody can engage in a set of behaviors every day, working out, eating healthy, sleeping well, doing things that improve their physical health. And it's not like there's some end point where like, if you're so, if you're Michael Phelps and you're like peak physical health, that it guarantees that you're not going to develop something like type two diabetes. It doesn't guarantee it. You just know that like, you know, the, the more effort that you put into your physical health, generally speaking, the lower chance you have of developing other physical health issues. Fine. Same thing applies on mental health. Like some people are, their biology makes them more predisposed to dealing with mental health conditions. That's okay. But that also doesn't mean that for the rest of your life, you're screwed and you're going to have to be on medication and therapy and there's no bright light at the end of the, the tunnel. That's not, that's not the case. And mm-hmm. the same of that is inversely is true. Like, just because you were not born bipolar does not mean that you will not have, that you will not deal with anxiety and depression. And, and that there are things in our lives, triggers, traumatic events, trauma that we carry with us for a long time that impacts our mental health. And that, that doesn't mean that we never need therapy or we don't ever need medication or we don't ever need any of those things. It's, it's a much more fluid understanding of the issue that, that, that it's all about sort of a spectrum approach and that some days you have good days, some days you have bad days. There are some things you can't control and there's some things you can't control, but it's not so black and white as like you're mentally ill or you're cured. That binary understanding of the issue is a really, I think, unhealthy place to be because it, it doesn't reflect the, the complexity of this problem, of this issue, of this topic. I think it's also just super freeing when you know that like it's okay to struggle, right? Because then it's like, all right, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to ride this wave. And then tomorrow I'll get back on the horse and hopefully it'll, it'll be good, you know, but it's okay to feel. And I think that that's just, if you want to break down mental health or mental illness for a second, it's really just about feeling right. So it's about understanding and validating our emotions and appreciating them for what they are. And sometimes you aren't taught that at a very young age, you know, people go, Oh, don't be angry. Don't be sad. You know, just, uh, you know, don't be overjoyed if, if, if something, you know, I don't know. I'm just, what I'm trying to get to is the fact of the matter that I think there's, we aren't taught enough that feelings, all feelings are positive and that we are supposed to feel and that we shouldn't be fearful of what we feel. Instead, we should be aware. And when we start to become aware of what we feel, we get to become connected to who we are and find that control over our challenging moments. And that's really what it is. You want to have control over those challenging moments so that you feel like you're in the driving seat, even if a flare-up or a trigger does arise. I know that we are going to transition now really quickly into if you could just leave us before we hop into some questions um, with from a business perspective, because we are all going through this year of of struggle, but then the trying to get back into a place of taking that control within our personal life professionally Um I think that it it would be really important to speak to somebody who may uh, be having a hard time, but doesn't know how to openly speak about their mental health to their company without feeling like they're going to be looked as less than. So if, because this is something that I'm sure that you guys open up the conversation to welcomingly over and over again at Project Healthy Minds, 
what would you say to somebody who may be fearful, but is having a challenging moment in their life right now and needs to take a mental health day? I would say that you should have the courage to protect your mental health, just like Naomi has done. If she can do it at the highest levels in front of everyone in the whole world at the French Open, then certainly any of us can do it. I mean, I think that there are real changing norms about mental health in the workplace. And I think actually that one of the things coming out of the pandemic, I mean, the pandemic has been terrible. And yeah. um, but, but one of the things, you know, every day we zoom in from inside our own home and there isn't a person who hasn't had, you know, the, uh, a kid in the background come running through or a dog bark or it's humanized coworkers in ways that we've never, you know, been transparent and vulnerable and honest. I mean, we literally zoom into each other's homes now and see each other. And I think that one of the things that that does when it humanizes the people that you work with, and they're not just your coworkers, but you actually know something yeah. about them and you feel a relationship to them is like, it, 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 it makes you more empathetic to what they're going through in their lives outside of work and how your life outside of work also impacts their work life. And so I would say, you know, I think that we're at a place now where there's an unprecedented amount of empathy. There needs to be more, but there's more than there's ever been before. And so I think it's important that people reclaim their agency and re the only way you reshape norms is by doing. And so the only way for people to take mental health at work seriously is if people start saying, I am prioritizing my mental health today. I need space. It's it's so important. And I've got to say, you know, from this entire conversation, I want you to know that it's okay to be fearful about it as well. Um, you know, it's 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 not so easy. Yeah. And I think we're talking about it as if it's so easy to go to somebody and say, I'm struggling with depression, I'm struggling with anxiety, but it can be really hard and it can be very challenging. But it's a beautiful thing for your own self when you know that you're taking that step forward um, by reclaiming the power that you have within your mental health journey and by being able to say, I'm going to say openly that I do struggle with this, but I can still show up and do the best job that I can. And there's something to say just about that. We've spoken so much about just breaking the stigma in general, but I know a little bit about you. So as I leave every episode, I wanted to ask you just a few simple questions that really tap into what make you, you, Philip. So as we ever so often obviously speak about building our personalized toolboxes to lend to our emotional journey, I want to know what served you the last time you had a flare up or possibly a challenging moment. Talking to my friends, getting the, the weight of it off your chest by opening up yeah. to people. I mean, when you're going through something rough, it's very easy to want to just keep it in and close up and not talk about it. But that weight can be suffocating. And it's remarkable how much better I feel when I actually open up to people and talk to them about what's going on, because it feels like I can get everything off my chest. So yeah. I always go back to leaning into your social support system, your friends, your family, et cetera, and being honest about how you're feeling. I, I think it's 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 so important. And to also know, you know, if you don't have that community, there's a community waiting to listen and hear from you. I just want to ask you, you know, if you could sum up your mental well-being journey in one word, without shame, this can be a happy word, a sad word, a complicated word, whatever you think, uh, what would that be? A journey. I mean, I think what you said is exactly right and is the epitome of all of this, which is that it's not perfect and it's not always terrible. It is about the journey itself and putting one foot in front of the other. I love it. Lastly, I'm going to ask you, what are the three biggest lessons you've learned in your life? Now, these can be words, feelings, sayings, stories, whatever really just comes to your mind. Yeah, I, I would say a couple of things. One is you have to open your mouth. Um, I am a huge believer, and, and I think, I think Haley, you know this, like I have 
I think partially because of the family I grew up in, the time I grew up in, you know, I grew up like during the financial crisis when the world was sort of falling to the, mm-hmm. to the end of the earth. And, and there was clear people who were like greedy and people who were unfairly harmed. Like I have a really strong sense of what's right and what's wrong. And I believe like your voice is such an important, such a sacred thing and using your voice to make a difference for however long you are on this planet is the moral responsibility that we all carry with us every day, especially people who come from a place of privilege. Because yeah. if you didn't have that voice, if you didn't come from a place of privilege, then, then you need other people to be using their voice. So that's one, like the power of using your voice. The second is um, nobody is going to advocate for you as much as you're going to advocate yourself. And I see all the time people who hope that others will recognize their contributions, their worthiness, you know, that they deserve a seat at the table, but they're not willing to self-advocate. And that is garbage to me. Like our job, I think at the end of the day, is to be your own best advocate and to step up and open your mouth and explain why you deserve a seat at the table. Like, I, you know, I, I just think that there are so many old school norms that are like, you know, if you're not old enough, you don't deserve a seat at the table. If you're, if you're, you know, not the right gender, you don't deserve a seat at the table. If you're not this, if you're not that, if you're not this, that's BS. That's just entirely BS. The third, the third thing for me is about empathy. And, um, and I think that's the thing that most people find the hardest. Everybody likes to say they're empathetic. You know, everybody likes to say it, but mm. um, I actually don't think that a lot of people actually understand what it really means to be empathetic. And I actually think that mental health is one of those issues where it tests you on empathy. Because if you see a, you know, 50 year old woman who has no hair anymore because she is going through chemo because she has breast cancer, it in that physical signal makes it really obvious what the person is going through. And so it's a lot easier to be empathetic to that person's life experience because it's so clear, right? You have a visual that's smacking you in the face that's saying to you, hey, this person is going through something that's difficult. You know, it, it's important that you're empathetic toward them. But mental health, there is no physical signal. I mean, there's no obvious, it's not like your arm turns green or you lose your hair or there's no like obvious signal. So what it requires is trust. It basically trusting that the person that you're talking to, that what they're saying is real, that it matters. And so the real test in my mind of empathy, of actually walking in someone else's shoes, of caring about them, of putting yourself in their place and, and taking your own bias aside, is if you can do it, even when there's not this obvious third party independent signal, physical signal that does it, then I think you're actually an empathetic person. And if you mm-hmm. can't, if you need that physical signal, then I think you still have more work to do. You, you just, I love those so much. I mean, I laughed at self-advocacy because I think that that's something that I'm great at. And I think that, you know, I, I am proud of myself for being great at it, right? I'm proud of myself for being able to stick up for myself and say that I'm worth it. And I think when you get to that place, you sort of everything else sort of floats away because you're like, I'm worth it. But that doesn't make me hot headed. That just makes me feel grounded in what I know, what my purpose is. And when you start to know what your purpose is, I mean, gosh, all bets are loose, right? Um, Empathy, I will say, is the most beautiful thing that you can have and a gift that I was given at such an amazing young age through acting and through the arts. It shows you how to be able to live in somebody else's shoes and understand people like no other. It is a beautiful, beautiful gift that we are given in this world. Um, And if you are ever having a challenging moment or day or conversation with somebody, just remember to be empathetic to what they are struggling with and a lot of what they are silently suffering with. I just want to continue this conversation with you, Philip, obviously, but I can't. So I'm going to say thank you. 
Thank you for sharing your vulnerability, your insight, your love, all of the above. And for anybody who wants to continue the conversation and to learn more about Project Healthy Minds or all the wonderful work that Philip does, you can head over to their Instagram, which is at Project Healthy Minds, their Twitter, which is at Project Healthy Mind, and their website, which is projecthealthyminds.com. Thank you. If you're looking to continue the conversation around living an unapologetic, authentic lifestyle, then this podcast is just for you. Our goal is to build a community in which you feel empowered to celebrate you by hearing inspiring stories of ownership to self. To always remember to lead with the three M's, mindfulness, movement, and mental engagement. You've got this, and we're here to support you along the way. So be sure to subscribe and download so you don't miss an episode. It's okay to not be okay in your journey to becoming grounded in the power of you. This has been a Stage 29 podcast production. The podcast is executive produced by Haley Hasselhoff, Patty Chiano, Laferne Cusack, and Stephanie Kaysen. Our audio editors are Jackson Ruff and Jonathan Dematty. Callie Kelts is the social media producer. And a special thanks to the rest of our podcast crew, Rwani Harinagay, William Cusack, Lisa Clark, Katie Brown, and Morgan Kaler. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the host and the guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.